It says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, writes, The ears were made for hearing, so you must listen when he who speaks made the ear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have given us all things. You've given us even breath, life. You've given us our hearts. You made hearts. You made ears. You made eyes. And God, so we ask that you would do what only you can do, which is to open the heart. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear your wonderful truth this morning. That we would hear it, understand it, and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Just for review, parables are short stories that are thrown alongside a spiritual truth for comparison. You could say that they're earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus wields the parable like a two-edged sword. On the one hand, he hid the truth with them. They were an instrument of judgment. On the other hand, he exposes the truth. They were an instrument of revelation. And Jesus uses them for those two purposes. And these parables in Matthew 13 are about the kingdom. They're clearly kingdom parables. And Jesus reveals to his disciples a period in God's kingdom program that was hidden from the prophets of old. An age between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. Someone might ask, what does this kingdom look like? What does this part of God's kingdom look like? Well, the gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed. People will be saved into the kingdom, but the consummation of it awaits his return. Someone might ask, well, as the gospel is proclaimed in this age, will people receive it? Or will they reject it? Thus, the parable of the sower. This is a parable about how people reject or receive the gospel, the word of God. And that's helpful, isn't it? It's helpful. Jesus gives us expectations for today, ministry, what it would look like. Jesus doesn't send out his disciples Employ them for ministry with unclear expectation. Hey guys, here's your message. You go proclaim it. We'll see what happens. 
No. He gives clear expectations. You go out with this message, proclaim the gospel, and here is how people are going to respond to it. That's helpful. I'll tell you it's helpful for me as a preacher of God's word. I can get up here, preach the word accurately, clearly, with conviction, and I can sleep at night. You know why? Because it doesn't matter how eloquent my speech is. It doesn't matter how creative I am or how compelling I am or how you know, good my argumentation is. My job is to preach the word and trust God with the results. That's helpful. I'm not responsible to change you, to change your heart. I can't do that. Only God can. It's helpful for you too, Christian. We're going to talk about today how you are also a sower in some way. There are surely people in your life that you're praying for, that you're evangelizing, children you're discipling. This parable helps you understand your simple responsibility, their heart's response, and it helps you to trust God's sovereignty and salvation. This is a helpful parable with great truth for us to understand and to apply in our life. How will people receive or reject the Word of God? Well, Jesus says it's kind of like a, a sower who goes out to sow seed. Listen. Listen to this parable. Let's start first with the parable. It's a simple story. It's simple and it's relatable in this context. You remember Jesus is in a boat. He's preaching to crowds on the shore of Galilee. Large crowds, perhaps thousands. And he's preaching to a largely agricultural society. So it's not unrealistic to think that maybe even 50%, if not more, of the people he's talking to are farmers. So they know what a sower does. In fact, some commentators would suggest that as Jesus is describing the work of a sower, he's pointing to one on the seashore because it was that common. He's using this real vivid physical illustration to describe a spiritual truth. Now, if you think about the work of a farmer, it's a, it's a big job. There's a lot of different aspects of farming. First, you've got to plow the field. You've got to cultivate the soil. Then you sow the seed, that is, you throw the seed out on the soil. Well, then you've got to water the plants, make sure it's getting water. You, you know, perhaps need to prune the, prune the leaves to bear more fruit. And then, of course, when harvest comes, you harvest the fruit. And then that whole cycle goes over and over and over again, many aspects of farming. But Jesus has us focus on only one, only one aspect of the farmer's life. And that is the scattering of seed, sowing. That's all that Jesus wants us to look at in the farmer's job. So a sower, what does a sower do? As I said, they've got a handful of seed, or sorry, a bag of seed in, in one hand, and then they take a handful and they throw it out. And a good sower wants a widespread to cast as much seed on as much good soil as he can, but 
any good sower understands that there are a variety of soils that the seed could fall on. In fact, Jesus describes four that are familiar to the sower or the farmer. Four kinds of soil. There's three bad and one good, obviously. First, you have the road soil. This is obviously bad soil. Seed that falls on the path. It can't penetrate the dirt. So that seed lays out open, bare, susceptible to attack. It could be crushed by feet or snatched up by birds. I learned this the hard way. I tried to reseed a patch of grass last year, but I didn't do topsoil. Big mistake. Literally the same day that I scattered that seed, I saw birds come down and pick it up and take it away. It's just that easy. Very simple. Vivid. We know, we understand this. How many of you plant your gardens on pathways, on roads? Of course not. You understand that's not good soil. The second soil that Jesus describes is the rocky soil. It's not good either. This kind of soil prevalent in Palestine, it is a deceiving soil because on the surface it looks good. It looks soft. But underneath that shallow, soft layer is a hard-plated stone. So the seed sprouts quickly. Finding immediate warmth and nutrition in the shallow soil, but just as quickly as it sprouts, it dies because there are no deep roots. That's the rocky soil. And then thirdly, you have the thorny soil, the soil filled with weeds. This is another bad soil. Weeds grow with the good plant, if not faster than the good plant, and then eventually those weeds overbear and eventually choke out the good plant, preventing it from growing and bearing fruit. Bad soil. We know this because when we have our gardens, our troughs, we go out and weed out those weeds. They're invasive. They're invasive. Finally, Jesus describes a fourth and the only good soil. It's just the good soil. We know that good soil, it's soft, it's tilled, it's prepared, it has good nutrients within it, it is cultivated by the farmer. And it's interesting to notice in in Jesus' parable, the yield of this soil. Look at, in verse 8, it produces grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some even thirty. Now, you need to know that this is an extraordinary harvest. A thirtyfold yield is an extraordinary harvest. It's unheard of. Alfred Edersheim, he's a Jewish scholar and historian, he said the best crop in Palestine, it yields 15-fold. The best. And so what Jesus just described, even with his lowest number, 30, is double the yield of the best best crop in Palestine. This is a significant harvest. This is noticeable. Like friends and neighbors are looking at that harvest and going, man, what is that guy doing different? It's exaggerated. It is extraordinary. Then Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. That's it. That's all that Jesus gives the crowd. 
It is a relatable, vivid, simple parable. The physical story is easily understood. Even we get it. We understand. Oh yeah, weedy soil, bad soil. Yeah, I'm not planting my garden on a path. I I get it, right? There's only one kind of soil that produces good fruit. You can see even the crowds maybe nodding along, following Jesus through the story. Yes, preach it, Jesus. This is Farming 101. But is that Jesus' purpose? What is the purpose of this simple illustration? What is Jesus alluding to? What does it mean? I ask you, if this is all you got from Jesus, if you didn't already know what the explanation was, or if we weren't able to go you know, a couple verses later and see the explanation, would you know what it means? What does this relate to? See, the crowd, they were not given an explanation. The truth behind the parable was hidden from them. We need an explanation to understand the significance of this story. Otherwise, it's just a physical story. That's, you have a parable. That's what a parable does. It both hides the truth, but Jesus reveals the truth to some. And we see him reveal the truth to his disciples in a few verses later, in verses 18 to 23. So that is this, now we need to understand the spiritual significance of this story. What truth is Jesus comparing to a sower, a seed, and four soils? There we get to the second part of the sermon, the explanation. The explanation. So we know that this explanation is only given to the disciples, those who are truly his followers. And he gives them the explanation in verse, verses 18 to 23. We really need Jesus' rubric here. We need the lens in order to understand what it means. And we'll see that the explanation of the parable is just as simple as the parable itself. It makes sense. But without the explanation, you're like a traveler without a map. And so Jesus identifies what it means. And first, we see that he identifies the seed. He identifies the seed. He says in verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So what is the message that is scattered here? What is the seed? The word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. Mark, in his account, he just calls it the word or the message. Luke calls it the word of God. This is clearly and evidently the word of God, including his whole counsel, but specifically the message of the gospel the good news of the kingdom, the message you must receive as it relates to the kingdom in order to enter the kingdom, in order to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is the message you must receive to be saved, the gospel. It is the one seed that can produce a fruit-bearing Christian. It is the unadulterated, pure, undefiled, power-packed gospel. This is the seed. 
Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In keeping with the illustration of fruit bearing, Paul writes of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed to the whole world and it is bearing fruit. This is the message. And it's one message. We notice that the sower doesn't go to different soils and sow different seed. He sows the same seed to all four soils. He doesn't try something here and go, oh, that doesn't really work, and try something different. Same word, same seed. Only one seed. Only one. There's only one food that can produce a fruit-bearing Christian. We visited Catalina a couple weeks ago. And on one of our nature tours, the guide was telling us about a problem on the island. It's called the Bambi Syndrome. Have you heard of it? The Bambi Syndrome. The island is filled with deer. It's an invasive species, actually. They'd be happy for you to take them away. Um, Because they're just ravaging the island. But the Bambi Syndrome is a little bit different. The Bambi Syndrome is when a skinny deer with ribs protruding out of their bellies come up to tourists and they're begging for food. And the tourists feel bad for old Bambi. They feel bad for the little doe. And so what do they do? They feed the deer food. Scraps from, you know, the burger meal, scraps from the pizza. They get human food. Now here's where the problem comes in. Deer can only digest one kind of food. And it is grass. Everything else is poison to their stomachs. It would be like us eating plastic. It would have a similar effect. So, although the human food is giving them that that sensation of being full, that sensation of delight, it's actually starving them to death. Which is maybe what Catalina wants, I don't know. Unfortunately, listen to me, the same is happening in the church today. People are like those deers and they're looking for junk food. And too many preachers are happy to give it to them. Messages that tickle their tummies but starve their souls. Because it's not the truth. It's not God's word. It's not the true, undefiled, unadulterated, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Preachers need to stick to the book, God's word, not their word or their opinion. But Christians also, like those deer, they're looking for junk food, so Christians need to develop an appetite for real food. They need to be in God's word, delighting in God's word to bear fruit, just like the psalmist in Psalm 1 writes. You need to be regularly eating this every day and not eating what the world has to offer or the synthetic gospels that maybe that YouTube preacher has given you. That feels good, that tickles the ears, but it doesn't feed your soul. Stick to the book. Stick to the one seed that has the power to transform your life. The Word of God. We see also that, you know, just the implications of this one seed, we see our simple responsibility in this parable. You notice that the sower, he's not identified. Only the seed is compared to the word of God. And so I think it is safe for us to assume, 
or to conclude that the sower is simply anyone who sows seed. So anyone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Now, of course, that includes your pastor, your preacher. He's proclaiming the word. It includes the evangelist on the street corner that's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, doesn't it also include you, Christian? Aren't we all ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Aren't we all heralds for the king? Don't we all have the ministry of reconciliation? To plead with others that they might be reconciled with God, the only way they're going to do that is that they hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're a sower, just like I am. You just have different contexts in which to sow seed. Different ways, different places, different circumstances in your life. God has placed you there in the midst of unbelievers, maybe family members, children that you're discipling, maybe neighbors, people in the community, that you need to sow seed to. You need to be faithful as an ambassador for Christ and proclaim the gospel. That is our responsibility as Christians, isn't it? We should all be sowing. We should all be sowing. But also, another implication of this is that the sower is not responsible for the other aspects of farming. So listen to me now. The sower is not responsible to till the ground, to prepare the soil, to grow the plant. But the sower is simply responsible for scattering seed. Think about the implications for gospel ministry. This will help you, parents. This will give you some relief, relieve you of the burdens that you carry for your coworkers, for your children, for your neighbor, for that family member that you love so much. You want them to be saved. You want to just change that heart. You want to just cultivate that soil. You want them to understand, to see, well, you can't do that part. You can't. You can't change that little heart. But what you can do is you can sow seed. You can proclaim the truth. You can put as much seed on the ground as you possibly can and be faithful to do that consistently, regularly. Proclaim the word of God. Preach the truth. Share the gospel. Be unrelenting in that responsibility. But at the end of the day, trust God to cause the growth. Pray, sow and pray, sow and pray. Sowing is the activity you're responsible. Praying acknowledges God's sovereignty. That he will cause the growth. In his time, he'll cultivate the ground of that heart, change it, transform it to receive the truth. Isn't that relieving, parents? I know it's hard, but it's relieving. You have that unnecessary burden you carry. Wanting somebody to change, and you just don't have that kind of control. So you need to trust God. Trust God with the results. Sow and pray. Trust the Lord of the harvest to do his job. You do yours. So we have the one seed is the word of God. The sower is one who is faithful to sow it. Now let's look at the four soils. The four soils, the four different kinds of soils are four hearts. They are four hearts. We see that in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. 
So here are four different heart responses to the gospel. Soil is a great comparison for hearts. It really is. First of all, soil receives or it rejects the seed. So hearts either receive or they reject the truth. Did you know that both the heart and the soil, they're both cursed because of sin? You remember in Genesis 3, God says, Adam, because you ate of the tree, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the earth because of you. In pain, you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. So the soil is cursed because of sin, and so is your heart. Your heart is inclined toward evil, always and continually. And just like your heart and your soil is cursed, the heart and the soil need an outside agent to change it. Soil can't change itself. The heart can't change itself. It needs an outside agent, someone else, to redeem it, to transform it, to cultivate it, till it, and plow it, and make it good. So the human heart needs God to transform it, to convert it, to cause it to be born again, to receive the good seed. It's a great illustration for the heart, the soil. Jesus is the master, master teacher. So he describes three bad heart responses, just like bad soil, and then one good heart response. Let's look at it. First of all, we have the hard heart. We have the hard heart. Jesus says this road soil, this path soil, is like a person who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So like a road, this person's heart is hard. It's unpenetrable by the truth. It repels the truth. Jesus says this kind of sin-hardened heart is a picnic for the enemy. It's like him taking candy from a baby. He plucks the truth out of there easily because that hardened heart is given over to sin. They don't want the truth. They won't even entertain the truth. What does this kind of hard heart look like? What are attributes of a hard heart? Well, it's an apathetic heart. It's a dull heart. It's a heart that doesn't care. I'm not interested in your gospel presentation. I've got a busy day ahead of me. I don't need to hear the truth. I've got other things more important to consider in my life. They're apathetic. They're indifferent. Sometimes they're antagonistic. Like a wounded dog, you touch the pain point in their life with the truth and they'll bite you back. They'll use any opportunity to argue with you about religion, to debate you, to try to debunk your Christian faith. They're looking for a fight. Sometimes a hard heart is antagonistic. A hard heart is definitely stubborn and proud. I think about Pharaoh, who was confronted by Moses to let God's people go. And then in his pride, he goes, who is this Yahweh that you talk about? I don't know Yahweh. Furthermore, I am not going to let his people go. Scripture is full of those examples of hard-hearted and stubborn people. And you know, in the church, we need to be careful. Listen to me. The hard-hearted are often religious. 
you should be thinking about the immediate party in context, the Pharisees. They were hard-hearted. They heard the clear teaching of Jesus. They heard the gospel of the kingdom. They saw his miraculous deeds. In fact, they saw a man with his withered hand. It literally was restored right in front of their eyes. And what was their response? It says in the text that they immediately conspired to kill him. That's a hard heart. It's like they're looking at the sun, but their eyes are so dull, so dim, they can't see its light. It's a hard heart. Are you hard toward the truth? I'm asking you. As I preach the Word of God, I recognize there's four soils out here. And some of you may be the hard-hearted. Are you hard to the truth? Do you hate the fact that someone pressured you to be here today? Maybe your parents, or maybe a coworker or someone else, maybe your wife has you here today. Maybe you like the moral aspect of Christianity because it just seems right, but you hate the preacher's call or Christ's call to deny yourself, to sacrifice, to love your neighbor as yourself, to give, to repent, because you're holding so tightly to sin or an idol in your life. Are you hard toward the truth? Christian, have you seen this kind of response in your witnessing? I have. I remember the students who used to walk in my youth group with their head down, their arms closed, and then when I'd start preaching, they'd look up at me with a scowl. Start talking with their neighbor, nudging them, making jokes, and just scowling at me. You could see the hardness in their heart. They'd walk away unchanged. Have you been immediately shut down, rejected, pushed away, argued with, mocked after your gospel presentation? Have you experienced the hard-hearted? Jesus tells us some people are going to respond this way. It shouldn't shock us. It should be expected. The heart that is given over to sin, it's opposed to the truth. There is a self-righteous, sin-indulging barrier built around their heart. It's been hardened in sin. And sometimes the truth just simply bounces off. Jesus told us, this is what we need to expect with some people. We need to expect this. The road soil represents the hard heart. The one who blatantly and immediately rejects the truth. A heart given over to the enemy. The second heart, the second bad soil, is the rocky Soil, which is a shallow heart. It is a shallow heart. Jesus says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself. Endures for a little while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is deceiving. This is a deceiving heart because their first response is good. It says they immediately receive it with joy. Oh, it's an emotional response. They may have prayed the sinner's prayer. They may have prayed that prayer with tears in their eyes. It was convincing. Oh, this looks like a great response to the gospel. Emotions convince us. 
And it gives the perception that they are receptive to the truth. But emotionalism, listen, is short-lived. Look back at the text. Notice the word immediately. Immediately they receive it. And then just as quickly, immediately they fall away. As quickly as it sprouted up, they die out. Why? Listen, they have no root. There's no depth to their faith. It is shallow. And with no root, and with, a, with no depth, they can't take the heat. So they get out of the kitchen. When the going gets tough, they stop growing. And they fall away and die. The word translated tribulation there is actually this word pressure. They feel pressure. And then they die out. When they start to feel the pressure, they crumble. I saw this in youth ministry all the time. We called it the mountain high. You heard of the mountain high? The mountain high refers to the the time at camp. Usually camp would be up in the mountain somewhere. So they go up the mountain and they are away from distractions. They hear the gospel preached. They have just a great community of other believers around them and they get emotional. Boy, do they get emotional. Tears are flowing at camp. They make a commitment to follow Jesus, but then they go back down the mountain and they feel the pressure. Maybe the pressure of unbelieving parents. Maybe the pressure of their peers And usually, man, it's almost within a week, they're back to living the same way they were before that camp. This is a shallow heart. There's no depth, no real commitment. And think about the illustration for a minute. Is it the son's fault? Is it the son's fault that the good soil, or sorry, the good seed withers away? Is it the sower's fault? No, it's the, it's the soil's fault, right? So think about the illustration. Is it the gospel's fault? Oh, that gospel is just too hard. Too much talk of sin. That's why they, they walked away. Is it the pressure and persecution of the Christian life that causes others to go away? Well, Christian life's too hard. You, man, the expectations are too much. You gotta take it easy on them. No, it's shallow hearts. That's the problem. Shallow hearts, bad soil. That's why people fall away. It's hearts that value their comfortable over Christ. It's hearts that are moved by emotions, but not the truth. It's hearts that want the easy road. They want the wide gate and not the way of suffering, not the door of Christ to follow in his footsteps. The narrow road, the narrow gate. Do you have a shallow heart? Are you here for the benefits of Christianity? Oh, they're nice people. Are you here for even the feelings? Maybe the songs make you feel a certain way. Or are you like the hit of conviction that you get from the sermon? Oh, that was a powerful sermon, Pastor. But then you walk out those doors, and Monday hits, and you feel the pressure the cost that you need to count to live the Christian life, the pressure from the world, 
the mocking you might get from coworkers, the requirement to deny yourself, the suffering, the persecution, well, that's all too much, and then you end up living Monday through Saturday the same way. For the world, for your sin, you fall away. As quickly as that conviction came, that good feeling that I'm going to commit to Christ and follow him, just as quickly you wake up Monday morning and go, I'm giving over. I'm going back to the way I was. Some Christians, or excuse me, I want to ask you Christians, have you witnessed this kind of shallow heart? Have you seen this before in family members and people you minister with in the church? Have you seen it even in Summit Bible Church? People who come and are excited and then they fall away. You were convinced they were a Christian. Oh man, I thought they were. I prayed the prayer with them. I saw those tears. I saw the excitement. But then they fell away. God, Jesus told us we should expect this. This is a heart's response to the gospel. And don't live in denial of it. Especially with those you love dearly, those closest to you. Some Christians live in denial. They refuse to accept Jesus' words here. People will respond this way. They will have a shallow heart, a shallow faith that's not genuine. It doesn't produce fruit, lasting fruit. There is a lot of rocky soil out there, especially in a comfortable Christian culture. But Jesus is turning the heat up, isn't he? We've seen a lot of this kind of soil in the American church. I think we're going to see less of it. Because as persecution rises, as the sun gets hotter, well, these, these people will just be a flash in the pan. They'll fade away quickly. So the rocky soil is a shallow heart. They're not genuine or fruit-bearing. The third bad soil that we have is the worldly heart. This is the worldly heart. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Spurgeon wrote, we cannot grow thorn and corn at the same time. So a man, Jesus said, cannot serve two masters. He says, either you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You need to know that every heart has one throne. Every heart has one throne. One master that rules it. It is either Christ or it is of this world. And you need to know that those masters do not share the throne. Christ will not share his throne with an idol. Neither will the idol share the throne with Christ. Because the master is ultimate, is Lord, is all-consuming. And eventually one will weed out the other. As long as that idol, that worldly idol, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, the, the greedy, covetous desires of your heart, as that, 
as long as that remains, as long as it rules your heart, that idol will choke out the word and there will be no real fruit. The idol must be uprooted. Now you tell me, how do you get rid of weeds? You just chop off the top? Do you just like till it back into the soil, turn them up a bit? No. You get on your hands and your knees and you pull that thing out by its root. Every last one of them. It must be thorough. It must be complete. If you leave any part of that plant, they will come back. The same is true of the heart. So it is with idolatry. Every idol of your heart must be uprooted. You cannot leave and be content with residue, with the remains of idolatry. You can't nurture a little idol in the corner of your life or in in one aspect of your heart and then let Jesus have the rest. You must surrender it all to Christ. Again, you can't grow thorn and corn at the same time. So, if you want this world more than Jesus, and if He lets you have it, which is a scary thought, those idolatrous weeds will outgrow, choke out your faith, and eventually prepare you for destruction because you've sold your soul to the world. Do you want this world or the things of this world more than Jesus? If you're honest with yourself, do idols rule your heart? Is it work? Is it success? Is it the American dream? Is it money? Is it possessions? Better car, bigger house? Is it people's perception of you? You want to look successful? You want to look like you're well put together? You want to receive the accolades, the achievements of man? Is it the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches? Are those idols on the throne of your heart this morning? Do you have a worldly heart? Are you harboring that idol, allowing the root to remain? Christian, have you seen this kind of heart? Have you seen this heart response to the gospel? I certainly have. We've seen examples in Scripture. What about Demas? Paul said, Demas has left me for the world. What about Judas? Judas who would betray his master for what? Money. How about the rich young ruler who walks away from the call to discipleship? Why? Because he had a lot of things. Oh, these idols are deadly. These worldly idols, worldly pursuits are deadly. We need to know that people respond this way. That even though we're faithful to share the truth, we're faithful to proclaim the gospel, at some point if they allow that worldly idol to still remain in their heart, it will choke out the word and they'll fall away. Be careful with money. Be careful with riches. Every idol, or sorry, every heart has one throne, one master. So some seed will fall on worldly soil and those idols will choke out the truth. So three bad soils. You have the hard heart, you have a shallow heart, and then you have a worldly heart. 
Three different responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one seed. And then Jesus gives us the fourth response, the fourth heart. And here's what it is. Soft heart. Good soil. What is good soil? It's softened. It is properly tilled, prepared, cultivated by the farmer. And the seed that falls on it produces good fruit. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 23. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. They don't just hear the word and repel it, but they let it sink into their hearts. They allow it to change them, to open their eyes. Think about what makes good soil soft and ready for seeding. Well, it's plowing. Plowing makes good soil soft. Who opens the ears to hear? Who opens the eyes to see? God. So it's God who makes the soil good. It's not that all of us are inclined to do good or to be good, naturally good. We need the the great farmer to cultivate our hearts, to open our eyes, to change our hearts. And God does that by grace. It's always grace. Grace that God would open our eyes to see the truth. Grace that he would open our ears to hear it and a heart that's soft to receive it. God gets credit for the good soil. The good soil is a heart that is soft, that has been redeemed, that is transformed, that is born again by God, that has been made ready to receive the truth. Listen, you can't change soil. You cannot change a heart, not even your own. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? There's only one, God. And only he has the power to change the heart. So if you're listening this morning, you've determined, man, I have a hard heart, or my heart has been hard. I have a shallow heart a faith that will easily burn out. I have a worldly heart. What must you do? Cry out to God, plead for mercy, and ask Him to change it. Ask Him, God, would you open my eyes? Would you open my ears? Soften my heart to receive your truth, to hear, understand, and apply in my life. Because only God can do that work in your heart this morning. And by the way, I've seen God do that work. That student that I described that was hard-hearted, crossing her arms and looking at me with a, a look of disgust, I found out just, just a few months ago that she got saved and that she's faithfully attending another Bible-preaching church in Arizona, in Phoenix. I, me and my wife, each other, like that, we never thought that would happen. But God broke a hard heart. The shallow heart. The shallow heart. The heart that is, is, is fickle. I've seen those hearts changed in youth ministry and even at Summit Bible Church. I've seen the worldly heart change. I've seen the worldly heart change. You know why? Because that was me before Christ cultivated the soil of my heart and transformed me. God can cultivate the soil, transform the heart, cause you to be born again. If that's you, cry out to him today. Cry out to God. Ask Him to change you. Believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Only one seed, only one way 
to have a right relationship with God. Turn from the sinfulness in your life. Repent of it and entrust your salvation to Jesus Christ alone. Do that today. Do that today. And watch God change the heart. How will you know? How will you know that a soil is good? That a heart has been transformed by God? Well, Jesus tells us in this parable. Go back and look at verse 23. It says, as for what is sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. How do we know? How do we know if they hear it and they understand it? He indeed bears what? Fruit. We will see fruit in their life. The fruit of the Christian life. We know the fruit of the Spirit. Excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, Jesus tells us the There are certain fruits that we'll see that'll tell someone if they are truly his disciples. If you love one another, if you obey my commands. And there's a varying degree of harvest in the Christian's life. Just as there's a varying degree, sorry, there's a varying degree of fruit bearing as there's a varying degree of harvest. Jesus says in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Now, it doesn't mean that the Christian life produces some fruit and not others. Fruit of the Spirit comes as a package, holistic. You'll be bearing those kind of fruits in some way in your life. It's not that you can be a Christian and come without repentance or come without love. I'm a Christian, I just don't have the love fruit. No, you bear all the fruit just in varying degrees. You don't get half a cob of corn in any harvest. You get, a whole, you get a whole cob, right? But in varying degrees. You get the point. A Christian will display all necessary fruit just in varying measure. But remember, remember that Jesus uses extraordinary numbers. 30, 60, and 100 full, fold. A 30-fold harvest is still extraordinary. So even, listen to me, a minimally fruit-bearing Christian will be noticed. It is an extraordinary, miraculous work of God. It will be apparent in your life that you're different. That's a different harvest. Well, that's a different kind of person. You will bear fruit in your communities. You will be an effective witness. You will bear good fruit in your homes, in your marriage. In your parenting, Christians bear fruit. And it's obvious. It's obvious. It's different. It is extraordinary. Even the ones in small measure. The fruit bearing is noticed and it gives great glory. Now, who gets the glory in the harvest? Who gets the glory for all the fruit that a Christian produces in their life? Paul gives us the answer. We got to ask, is it, is it the sower? Does the sower get the glory? Does the seed get the glory? Does the soil get the glory? Listen to Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, 
and you are God's fold. There's only one Lord of the harvest, one king who gets all the glory. This king empowers the seed. He employs the sower. He tills that good soil. He grows the plant and he reaps the reward. It's all about Christ. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. It's good reminders for us as we're faithful to sow seed and we watch God cause the growth and get the glory. So, how are people going to receive or reject the word? It's kind of like a sower who goes out to sow seed. Some fall on the road, which is hard. The seed doesn't penetrate. The birds take it away. Similarly, some hearts are hard and they will inevitably reject the truth. Some seed falls on rocky soil. With, uh, it is shallow. The seed sprouts quickly, but as quickly as it sprouts, it dies because it has no root. Similarly, some hearts are shallow. They'll immediately re- appear to receive the truth, but just as quickly they will die off when the pressure comes because there's no real depth to their faith. Some falls on weedy soil. The seed is choked out by weeds. Similarly, some hearts are worldly, given to worldly idols like riches and the pursuits of this world. And these idols push out the word of God because in their heart they cannot serve two masters. Finally, some falls on good soil. And the way we know that they hear and understand it is because it bears extraordinary fruit. It'll be evident in this person's life. It'll be clear. They are different. God has changed them and transformed them by his gospel. There it is. He who has ears, let him hear. You guys, ears, let him hear. Just briefly, I want to give you some evidence. You know, sometimes it's hard to discern what's fake fruit and what's real fruit, right, in a Christian's life. A couple of points, okay, discerning fake fruit, from, fake fruit from real fruit, and it's drawn out of this passage. Number one, real fruit is Christ-exalting. A person's testimony will be less about them and how they turn their life around. It'll be more about Christ and what he did. You're quick to talk about the things you love, the things you value. So a person who talks about Christ is someone who loves Christ, who values Christ over the comforts, the benefits, etc. of Christianity. First, real fruit is Christ-exalting. It's about Christ and not them. Second, real fruit is love. And it's not the world's love. It's not mushy, lots of hugs, affection. He says, you'll know my disciples by their love, Jesus says. I'm talking about displays of true sacrifice, agape love. That's what distinguishes a Christian from this world. A love that isn't out to get what they can from others, but a love that gives to others. A love that considers others as more important than themselves. It's a love that serves. A love that forgives. A love that's unconditional. A love that the world can't explain, doesn't have measures for. That's real fruit. Gospel fruit. Third fruit is obedience. Someone who doesn't just talk the talk, but they walk the walk. Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and do them, then you're like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And finally, the fourth real fruit is endurance, a faith that lasts, not a flash in the pan. 
Jesus says in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The author of Hebrews exhorts us to run the race with endurance. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, you'll be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Finally, James 1, 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, pressure of various kinds, as you know that the testing of your faith, that is true faith, produces endurance. And endurance having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Four markers of real fruit, tested fruit. You have Christ exalting, you have love, loving and obeying and enduring. Watch for those things. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm a Christian, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? That's a good follow-up question. Look for these things in brothers and sisters in the church. Look for these things first in your own life. Self-examine. Is your faith real? Look for these things in the life of your children. But above all, be faithful to sow seed. Proclaim the gospel. Trust God to cause the growth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, just again, I ask that you would do what only you can do, which is open eyes, open ears, open hearts, to receive the truth and to bear good fruit. I ask that you do that work even today. I pray that, God, you would help someone recognize that their heart is not good, that it needs the miraculous saving work of regeneration. It needs to be awakened by you, God. It needs to be cultivated, transformed. And I pray that somebody would cry out to you today in true faith. And that we as believers, as we go around sharing our faith, help us to understand how the different responses, the different responses we'll get and to trust you with the results. Help us just to remain faithful, to be an ambassador, a herald of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.